From now on, you will have no identifying marks of any kind. You are no longer part of the system. We are the men in black. You know what the difference is between you and me? I make this look good. Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones look good and sound good in that scene from Men in Black, a movie about aliens and the men and women in black suits and ties who keep track of them. Men in Black is just one of the fictional stories spawned by a controversial UFO sighting that was reported in the Seattle area back in 1947. The case is known as the Maury Island Incident, and because it marks the first mention of the Men in Black, Steve Edmiston, who's a lawyer as well as an independent film writer and producer, calls the Maury Island Incident the FBI's original real-life X-File. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Alan Boyle, your host for the Fiction Science Podcast, coming to you from the intersection of science and fiction. Join me as I chat with Steve Edmiston about the Maury Island Incident and about the Men in Black Birthday Bash, an annual celebration of the Seattle area's UFO claim to fame. The Maury Island incident in 1947 hasn't gotten as much press over the past 76 years as the UFO sighting that was reported two weeks later in Roswell, New Mexico. But it marks the introduction of some standard elements of the UFO tales that followed in its footsteps. During a boating trip in Puget Sound, a regular guy named Harold Dahl sees a squadron of six donut-shaped flying saucers in the sky above, the next day, a mysterious man in a black suit shows up and tells Dahl that things will go badly if he ever shares what he saw. It doesn't take long for the FBI and the U.S. Air Force to get involved as well, and for the Maury Island incident to be written off as a hoax. Decades afterward, Seattle entertainment lawyer Steve Edmiston rediscovered the story, and he teamed up with filmmakers to create a short movie about the Maury Island incident. In 2022, the Seattle Southside Regional Tourism Authority organized a community party called the Men in Black Birthday Bash to mark the 75th anniversary of the incident. This year, the event has been turned into a full-fledged festival for the communities just south of Seattle, within sight of Maury Island. Today, Edmiston calls himself a micro-historian who specializes in the Maury Island incident and all the weirdness it gave rise to. During our Zoom conversation, we delved into the details surrounding the incident and its impact on decades' worth of UFO stories that followed. We also talked about this year's Men in Black Birthday Bash, which celebrates the anniversary of whatever happened on June 22, 1947. And I asked Edmiston what he personally thinks of the Maury Island incident. So stay tuned for that thrilling conclusion. But let's start with the first question. What the heck was the Maury Island incident? You'll find out that I love talking about this story because it's just so crazy. And finding out what is going on is the question. And, and it's a complicated story and it's a long story. I'll try to keep it as, as slim as possible. Yeah, uh, yeah. And what that, what that is, is this. So um, we'll just take it in a timeline. June 21, 1947, a man named Harold Dahl, who lives in Tacoma, Washington, gets on his 50-foot industrial trawler boat called the North Queen. He brings his 16-year-old son. He picks up two dock workers in Tacoma. They go three miles till they're just off Maury Island which is now Maury Island and Vashon Island in Washington state. 
And they alleged that at that point on that day, they saw six flying disks and they've been described even in FBI files investigating this, shaped like donuts. So they're hollow in the center. One of those appears to be, uh, according to the allegations, failing. Ultimately, it's releasing a chaff and then ultimately it kind of has an explosion and and uh, they call it slag falls out of that craft onto the boat, onto this 50 foot boat, which allegedly uh, burns Charles, the son's arm. Uh, they've brought the family dog. The dog is killed as a result of this falling slag. And they are so frightened. And this is sort of I, I think of it. I'm a I'm a hobby filmmaker, if you will. I always think of it as the private Ryan. They're so frightened they have to get off the water. Imagine being that frightened. Then they take that 50-foot boat. They drive it onto the beach of Maury Island. They get off the boat and hide in the cliffs. And then these craft, they leave, right? And 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 that's sort of the Maury Island incident. That's the basic allegation of that first day. Where it gets, I always say, where it gets kind of weird and stranger than the average person that says, I saw something, is the very next morning, uh, Harold Dahl uh, gets a knock at his door in Tacoma, and uh, the man at that door is dressed in black. <laughs> White shirt, black tie, black suit, black shoes, got the fedora on, came up in a black 1947 Buick. It's all there in the records. And uh, uh, allegedly tells Harold, uh, I saw everything that you that happened to you on the water yesterday. We need to go somewhere where we could talk about that. They go to a diner in Tacoma, Washington, where the man in black proceeds to tell Harold everything that happened on the water the day before, and then does something that we all now associate with that historical men in black. It's sort of their one behavioral thing we can all agree. They give the warning. So uh, this man in black warned Harold Dahl, don't talk about it. You know, don't speak to anyone. Don't pass this around. You don't even know what you saw. Bad things will happen if you talk about this information. So that's actually the whole Maury Island incident in a nutshell, those two days. None of that is really the weird part, Alan, because this story gets crazy after that. And the crazy part is because, first of all, this is the summer of the saucers, right? Roswell. June of 1947, three days later, Ken Arnold sees nine flying disks right. on Mount Rainier. And two weeks after that, there's this little thing that happens in Roswell, New Mexico. And those aren't the only three things happening. There are thousands of sightings, as you know, around the country in 1947 with the press labels, the summer of the saucers. So this is all very exciting. And at the end of the summer, by that time, the army and the FBI and the uh, uh, even newly founded CIA, they're all investigating these sightings. And you and I can kind of think about that and go, that can't be right. Come on, they weren't taking it seriously. But the truth was they were taking it seriously, not because they're worried about little green men, but because we had a new enemy, the Soviet Union, right? And, right. and President Truman had just said in May, we got to contain them. And all these agencies were now worried that maybe some of us are seeing things overflying our country and we should investigate that. So they did. And Maury Island was on the list to be investigated. And two Air Force officers, uh, intelligence officers, came out to Tacoma to interview Harold Dahl and his partner, Fred Christman, and a couple other people. Ken Arnold was there, and they met in a hotel, and they tell the story, and they even have samples of the slag in a cornflakes box. I mean, the, you can't make this stuff up. It's just silliness, right? But the thing that they have it in a cornflakes box, these two intelligence officers, uh, Captain Davidson and Lieutenant Frank Brown, 
go back to the airport of Fort um, at, at McCord Air Force Base, and they want to fly to California. They want to get out of there because, you know, first of all, they you know, middle of the night, they've been working a long time, but it's Air Force Day. The first day the Air Force will separate from the Army and be a branch of the military. So they want to be down for the celebration. They get on the, they get in a B-25 bomber, which sounds really strange, but I always kind of now think of this as the Uber of the military at the time. So much surplus hardware. So, you know, if you want to move around the country and you're pilots, you could just grab something. And so they're in a B-25 bomber flying. So they take off from Tacoma after the investigation with the slag manifested a top secret cargo. And uh, that plane catches fire spontaneously and uh, crashes in the forests just east, very rough territory east of Kelso, Washington. Um, and uh, two pilots perish in the crash. And in fact, because it is Air Force Day, they're the first two fatalities in the history of the United States Air Force as a separate branch of government. So it has a really tragic twist, this Maury Island story, which then leads to the final act, which is the FBI's investigation. And what I what I have come to think of as our agent Mulder, you know, it's like almost the original X-File, if you think about it, because here's a lowly field agent in the Federal Bureau of Investigation in 1947 in Tacoma. You couldn't be farther from the power center. Couldn't be farther. And he gets a file and it says, plane crash, you're investigating it. And when you dig in, it's all about we're investigating UFOs and we're, you know, this is what all it's about. And there's top secret cargo and it was on the airplane and, you know, just a wonderful, wonderful story. That's why I know and we know so much about this crap, so much about this whole story was because the FBI conducted a almost three week investigation with documentation on a daily basis going all the way to J. Edgar Hoover. I mean, Hoover's got his fingerprints all over this. He was super fascinated by it. So as a lover of history, this this was just candy for me. Mm. And that's how I got involved. And that, and that, I think, is you know the shortest version of Maury Island, I can tell you. But there's a lot of meat there, right, Alan? Right, <laughs> right, right. And there's always been a debate over, well, is it a hoax? Did the witnesses make it up? Or the, was the witness so scared that he said, if anyone ever asked me about it, I'm going to say it's a hoax because I just don't want to get involved in it. And so there were a lot of unanswered questions. Like, for example, was there ever any outcome to the investigation of the bomber crash? Did they figure out what happened to that plane? Yeah, there's a couple things. Um, a couple things we found out. And then let's come back to the hoax, too, because yeah. that's really important to discuss. But we, we had a couple things. I, I was able to, you know, uh, I, I'm sure you are a frequent or have been in the past a frequent user of the Freedom of Information Act, Public Records Act. And I was able to find because normally more you know, UFOs are the most requested documents in history. Right. And in fact, they're I think agencies are so sick of it. They've created the vault and it's all there and you don't even you know, they just send you there to get everything they have. But I was wanting to get information about the plane crash itself. And I decided, you know, the best way to get information sometimes is not let the person you're asking know what you're asking about. So I didn't mention UFOs or anything about Maury Island. I went to the army and asked about a plane crash in Washington. You know, I knew what I was asking about. And um, lo and behold, six months later, I hadn't, I'd totally forgotten about it. I get a call from a, a, a military archive in Alabama and an officer says, hey, I don't think I have much for you. All I, I only have one document. It's a 63 page final mission report. Hmm. 
And I just was like, you know, when you're on the phone, you're dancing and they can't see you because it's so exciting that you've just got something. So we do know a lot about the crash now, at least from the final mission report. And, and you know, uh, apparently the B-25 bombers were notorious for getting a flame, uh, a spontaneous fire uh, in one of the two engines, one on each side. And so, you know, the the they attribute it, that spontaneous fire to that happens on a B-25. The two pilots were extraordinarily heroic. They had picked up two passengers um, to take on this journey, just kind of hitchhiking, you know, military men hitchhiking down to California. And when the plane caught fire, they got parachutes on those two men, took the time to get parachutes on those two men and get them off the plane. And those men survived. Um, uh, the pilots did not. That was too much time. So really heroic uh, work on their part. So we know about that. And then we also know from the FBI records, sort of everything around why the plane was there, what it was doing, what it was carrying. That was all part of the FBI investigation that was so extensive. And that's what was fun for me as a writer was to just dive into just all these pages of things that maybe weren't interesting to other folks, but to me, super, super interesting. And that's where, you know, circling back to this hoax notion, I think the reason that we don't think of Maury Island like we do Roswell mm-hmm. is because even now you go on the internet, you'll f- certainly find the word hoax used frequently, or at least as a, it, you know, at least as a 50-50, maybe it's a hoax, maybe it's not. And, and you know, and I don't really spend time, did it really happen? But when I read the documents exchanged between field agent Jack Wilcox, our, our agent Mulder, if you will, right. real life Mulder, Jack Wilcox, directly to J. Edgar Hoover, no middlemen. They were actually teletyping back and forth directly. On August 14th of this investigation, the summer of the saucers, Hoover has been reading the newspapers and has been reading memos. And he sends a teletype to this field agent, Wilcox. And that teletype basically says, looks like it's a hoax. Looks like he's confessing to a hoax. We can close this. And that's the August 14th memo or teletype from Wilcox. I mean, imagine the courage to tell the executive director of the FBI at the height of his powers. No, you're wrong. That's not what Dahl said. Dahl just said, I really saw what I saw, but if I'm ever asked about this now, I'm going to claim to be, and I think you said it, the biggest liar that ever lived because I don't want to be ridiculed anymore. I don't want any of this to happen. And the words Dahl did not admit are, are so fun for us, we tend to use them. We we put them on the back of a T-shirt, if you will. I can sell you that T-shirt, Alan. <laughs> All did not admit. Uh, mm. It's it's just a great story that has a lot of unanswered questions. And, and in your retelling of the story, you refer to the involvement of the, quote, infamous Fred Crispin, unquote, who is well known as a teller of tall tales. And uh, some of the people who were involved in trying to bring this story to light at the very beginning were basically working for pulp magazines. Is that a factor? Is that one reason why the story came to be dismissed at the time? Well, you know, if you're searching for credibility, having Fred Christman attached to your project is not going to help you. That's 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 certainly historically proved to be true. Now, whether that was as true at the time, I don't know. But, um, you know, as a writer, I'm I I did. I was the um, uh, screenwriter for the the 30 minute short film, Maury Island Incident. And it's not a documentary. It's a it's a narrative film. And as a writer, you know, and looking at all this stuff to create a way to tell this story, I uh, I found Chrisman to be highly problematic because he was an extraordinary distraction to that. So as a as a writer, 
I, I took the uh, the literary license, if you will. He's in the film, but he's not he's not like driving the film. Um, and clearly, Chrisman is the type of individual that would have loved to make up a hoax and get some sort of notoriety, certainly. But he wasn't on the boat, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, he 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 comes in after the fact uh, uh, in the storyline, which is is one thing, and it, it isn't clear. Other than the fact that that he's convincing Dahl to go public and let's if you saw this thing, let's make some money on it approach. And then you had these pulp magazines, right? You had Ray Palmer and you had Fate magazine and amazing stories out there looking for content. So there's a, a marketplace for these kind of stories. But I can't find uh, anything other than the lin- the linear is alleged sighting. Chrisman comes in after the fact and convinces them to do go down this path of public. And that's where, you know, I think Harold Dahl just became sick of the whole thing when he realized I'm going to be a, considered a fool, mm-hmm. right? And, mm-hmm. I, you know, I'd rather be a liar than have the kind of ridicule I'm getting. So, um, and then the other thing for me, uh, Alan, I, I would share is if Harold Dahl made it all up, like if this was the story that one day he said, sitting around a fire, I have an idea, you know, more power to him, man. What a great story. This story is, as far as my research tells me, the first time someone alleged this thing called the men in black. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and now when I give some talks about this subject matter, I have switched the talk away from sort of the Maury Island, the sighting story, that's backstory. I think it's really, really fascinating to to look at how this story, true, not true, hoax, not hoax, the ripple effect. You know, you go from, you go from Harold Dahl to Ken Arnold writing his book, The Coming of the Saucers in 58. Then you go into the late 50s, early 60s, and you've got a, 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 a guy named Albert Bender in Bridgeport, Connecticut. And he thinks, oh, gee, I'm going to tell a story about a men in black. And then you got a guy named Gray Barker that says, I'm going to tell that story. And then it grows and grows and grows. And now we've got you know Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith and X-Files and all these things, all dating back to January, tw- I mean, to June 22nd, 1947. Mm-hmm. All comes back to that. That's the, that's the stone that was thrown in the pond that all these stories come from. Yeah, it is weird that uh, not a lot of people, I would say, uh, are super familiar with the Maury Island incident. I think uh, in the article that you wrote for Fate, you say that you've lived in the Puget Sound region for virtually all of your life, but you never heard about this thing until 2011. Uh, so even though the incident itself is not as well known as say Roswell, it seems to have had an outsized influence on the way that UFO stories are told. And is that what happened? Is that it just so happened that Kenneth Arnold was in the right place at the right time to hear about this and incorporate it into the, you, you know, you kind of inject it into the ecosystem and it takes off. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, I think so. The, the thing about Kenneth Arnold, you know, and that he, he was actually also investigating. That's how he, he comes into the Maury Island story is that he got hired by fate magazine, right. To come and investigate sightings. And so all of a sudden there's a confluence between the pulp magazine investigations and the military investigations. They're literally in the same room at, at the Winthrop hotel doing these, these interviews, but Arnold was very credible. That was the thing about Ken Arnold. I mean, he's a, 
a civil aviation pilot and and he just was just you know kind of became a celebrity on a national basis this this really credible individual at the beginning of the summer of the saucers sees this thing and and i and i think that had he not been involved then i still you and i wouldn't be having this conversation and maury island would have disappeared completely um it would, wouldn't have gotten any traction at all um, if if that hadn't occurred. Is my is my speculation. Um, the the uh, but I'm I'm you know this is one of those stories as a as a, a lover of history. You you do realize that great stories truly get kicked to the dustbin as if they never happened for some reason. Sometimes it's just people ignore it and then thirty years later it's gone. No one has a memory of it, so it didn't happen in a sense. This one, I think, got kicked to the dustbin because the hoax, uh, the hoax uh, 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 mantra was accepted. You know, even though the FBI had been told he wasn't claiming a hoax, Hoover was happy to close the file. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was a fifty-year, you know, ceiling of of their investigation, so their file didn't open up until 1997. And by that time, I think you've got every other story in the world going along. And why would anybody pay attention to something that had the the label hoax attached to it. So unearthing this story and unearthing maybe that's not as convenient to kick to the dustbin because of the so-called hoax, that's been really fun. That, that's been a really, really fun project, which is kind of why we've you know created some of these community celebrations here locally of this, of really what's a piece of local history here in the Northwest. Uh, and, and we do have a lot of fun with Roswell. We kind of, we kind of, Use them as a foil, you know, <laughs> sucking, all the, sucking all the oxygen out of the room uh, undeservedly, and that that's kind of a fun thing to do. But uh, um, the Men in Black Birthday Bash that's coming up in late June is all about this history. Yeah, uh, you've done a lot of research into how this story has been covered over the decades, and I'm curious about the effect that the story has had on the Seattle area. Has it? always been part of the lore or just not that not that well known but people kind of kept the story alive until for some reason it it has been rediscovered now and it it seems as if there's more interest in it now well a good good question i i actually think in a sense the opposite scenario is true i i my sense has been um that seattle is 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 not been a taker you know our our region has absolutely not been a caretaker of the story uh when we when i learned about it in a coffee shop in my art the article that we talked about you know i talk about how did i even hear about this story i'm in a coffee shop and somebody i don't know you know brings it up um um i not really run into anybody over years that had heard about it before that point in time you know it just wasn't in the zeitgeist here at all. So we weren't caretaking it, waiting for an opportunity to grow it up in here in the Northwest. It was just gone. Um, and uh, it, again, it's been fun to revive it. I think it was easier to find people that were aware of it outside of the Northwest, you know, people that were more into UFO history overall. And that was a, a genre of, of something that they were interested in, and they would connect to this first. But uh, from the standpoint of local history, it's been a big lift to sort of pick it up and dust it off and make it shiny and say, hey, this is this is some history. And, and certainly it incorporates mythology. It's a merger. Um, but the history, the, the, the objectively measurable facts are so fascinating 
upon which that mythology is is resting. It's just a just a good story to revive, I think. Yeah, this happened 76 years ago. So have you ever come across anybody who had firsthand experience or a connection to the story? Or are we really left with history books and newspaper clippings to find what, you know, find the background to all this? Well, so far, uh, it's the latter. It's the, it's the, you know, what can you dig up, uh, you know, from, from, you know, second primary or secondary sources, secondary sources, I guess. Uh, however, in the last few years, we've had the good fortune, uh, you know, of because we've just, you know, we've had our celebrations and we've had these things out there. We made the movie. Um, we have, uh, we, we got a chance to meet uh, and talk with uh, the, one of the grandchildren of Agent Jack Wilcox, who, um, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm very sorry, uh, one of his children. Um and, yeah, uh, you, and you can start again. We got it. We got the opportunity to talk with the okay. child, with the son or daughter or whatever you want to say. Yeah, we did have the opportunity to speak with uh, one of the children, the the daughter of of uh, Special Agent Jack Wilcox, who was the field agent in Tacoma um, at the time investigating this crashed B twenty five, and of course, because of that, investigating the Maury Island incident story where all of our records come from. Um, and, and she's, she's been just absolutely wonderful talking about her father and the only, you know, did he talk about it at home? She said, no, you know, we would not have known anything that he's working on as an FBI agent, but she did say this. And, and then she gave some interviews, uh, to a writer at the uh, Seattle post intelligence, or she did say this to us as well, that, um, she said that her father was the most honest, candid, and blunt, you know, man that she had ever experienced. And uh, if he wrote something, it was going to be the truth. And so he would have had no problem correcting the director of the FBI. That did not surprise her at all that he would say, no, that's not correct. This is what he said exactly. And, you know, that's the truth. And I thought, well, if for nothing else, the acknowledgement of the character of one of our lead, you know, protagonist in this story was was fun. So that's number one. And the second one was a and the Harold Dahl, the Harold Dahl, the man who alleges that this happened, his family tree is very complicated. And uh, and, but one of uh, of, uh, I will say a a a granddaughter, but there's multiple marriages and, you know, in that line. We were able to meet her in the last uh, two years, a couple of times, had her out to one of our events. Uh, absolutely lovely. And the piece of information that was critical to the story, one of the things we hear is, gee, if the son had had his arm burned on that, you know, everybody wants to ask good questions, right? If the son had had his arm burned, there there would have to be some record. There would have to be something, we could, something verifiable. Um, good question. Not easy, you know, so far unanswerable. However, when we met this um, this individual, um, she said, oh, uh, the fact that Charles had his arm burned was totally known within the family. That was talked about all the time. That was that was not an extraordinary thing that ar- that Charles arm had been burned and that something had happened. So she was very eager to say, hey, this is, you know, this is this is not just, you know, there's something verifiable here that's easy for us to discuss. Um, the other thing I think she was able to talk about was 
the idea that once it, you know, once it was a family secret, like if if your family says it's kind of a Hollywood trope, right? If you're if the family now has a secret, you you know, and they they now and that secret says it was a hoax, right? This is what we will say forever: it's a hoax because we don't want to be ridiculed. The fact that the kids later say to somebody it was a hoax is a perpetuation of the secret, not necessarily a confession of the truth, right? I mean, you've got to at least consider both possibilities. And and so talking with this this relative, this, you know, now, you know, multi-generation down the road relative was also useful. But that's it, Alan. That's the only two connections that we've encountered. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I assume that once the incident happened uh, and, you know, after months of investigation, people returned to their lives, uh, I, I think the, in in your report for fate, you mentioned that uh, that uh, Harold Dahl's wife uh, became ill at one point, and and that kind of added to his worries. But did people basically go on and live their lives after this happened, or are there strange things that continued to happen? Well, in that period, in that in the summer of the saucers period, when Harold had been warned. Do not tell anybody what you saw. And then clearly he did tell people. He talked, right? And then these bad things happened that you mentioned, like, uh, you know, maybe they are attributable to something else, but at least from a a temporal standpoint, they were, you know, correlated with the warning and then bad things, right? So his wife became ill. Uh, Allegedly, his son went missing for an extended period of time and was found in Montana without any memory of why he was there. That sounds kind of crazy. Um, he had vandal his business was vandalized um you know so 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 you can at least say well some bad things appeared to happen him, to him during this period however you know sort of after then the fbi closes the file they're just going to allow the hoax to continue it appears that everybody kind of did go on with their lives the person that i you know in in learning in this overall story that seems to have had the the most difficult um um life, I guess, because of their involvement is probably Ken Arnold. Um, you know, Ken Arnold, uh, highly credible witness, never backed down any part of his story or what he believed the, you know, the Maury Islands story was. And and I and it kind of appears that by the end of his life he was just really he'd become very frustrated and even embittered by sort of that, you know, today we live in a world where at least, you know, we have branches of the military, you know, willing to share, you know, really strange radar and sonar and, you know, uh, images and talking about, you know, what we used to call UFOs. Um, But I think Ken Arnold lived in a generation from that 50s to 70s era where it was just ridiculed. And I think that was really a source of frustration for him throughout his life, talking to some of his, you know, uh, heirs. Um, Mm. But other than that, you know, I think people did return to their lives. And they had they had the family secret to cover, right? They didn't mm-hmm. they didn't ha- they didn't always get invited to UFO conventions because allegedly that was a hoax. So you're not invited, right? Um, I think that's what happened. Yeah. Have you reflected on why it is that the Men in Black trope has lasted so long and been so attractive to people? Is there something in our psyche that this resonates with? Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, have I reflect? Well, you know, I, I've 
I think I've done what I probably made the mistake that many historians make, right? It's like, you know, you get wrapped up in the names and the places and the dates. And I always want to add, you know, go deeper than that and figure this out. But it's usually from that character standpoint, from my own perspective, why, you know, um, um, I, I do think that the men in black uh, uh, have, have, there's a component of them that we are both afraid of. And we're always, you know, horror movie. We know we, we're attracted by being afraid, um, um, you know, and, and, and we're intimidated by, but there's like this insatiable curiosity of somebody knows more than I do. And boy, would I love to know what they know. Right. So you've got this kind of confluence of um, maybe there's something nefarious going on out here. Um, and I'm, and maybe there's something to be afraid of. And that's sort of thrilling to know that that could be happening. Um, and then, boy, would I like to know that sense of discovery. And, and I think that it's a pretty easy character to trot out over and over and over again, because it sort of fills a lot of gaps in your storytelling, right? I mean, you can, you can run 11 seasons of X-Files and not fully explain why, why this is happening. Uh, because we're satisfied that it's happening and that there's a power there, you know, even on a global basis, um, that uh, that needs to be hacked. That we need to figure out why this is happening to us. Um, and I think as humans, we're kind of attracted to to that. You know, we're both attracted to it and afraid of it. And I know that with the Men in Black birthday bash, it's not uh, it's it's not really. Uh, an investigative seminar. It's not totally serious. You have you find the fun in in the story, and so uh, tell me a little bit about the fun. Oh yes. So uh, we uh, the Men in Black Birthday Bash is 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 now a festival, right? We've got not just one party, which which we call six twenty two. Guess what day it's on? It's on June twenty second, the day of the first encounter of the Men in Black. And that's a party. So we launched the festival with kind of an opening night party. We have uh, we'll have 150, you know, folks dressed as men in black or women in black. Uh, but you'll also find many non-traditional uses of black and white, right? I mean, so the idea is that we 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 accept the entire grayscale of color, right? <laughs> and and there's no formality to it. But yes, you're right. We are celebrating this incredible story. So there's some storytelling that occurs at this program. There's music that we'll have at the program, and and then and then there's a lot of fun at the program. We 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 do a lot of things to try to marry this, you know, a marriage of this history and this mythology with kind of entertainment, hoping that the community just really embraces it. And so far, they have. I mean, they're just, you know, it's 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 our story, right? I mean, that's that's the fun part. Is like you get to say, wait a minute, wait a minute, yes, have fun down, you know. Have fun taking a plane into wherever you have to go to then drive three hours to Roswell or come here and and dress up in black and white and you can look at Maury Island. You're right there and and have a great party. So that that's been a lot of fun, but it is about story. It ends each year. Surprise, surprise with the warning, the annual warning. So if we can get excited about a uh, rodent seeing its shadow and predicting spring, I think we can, you know, uh, also be excited about a, an annual warning from from our celebrity men in black, whoever that is every year. And then we now have a movie night fest, a movie uh, film festival, and we've got a, a, a music fest. So there's a number of events here in Seattle that are worth checking out. But if you haven't checked any of them out, I think coming to the 622 party is well worthwhile. 
Well, you're a lawyer as well as a self-described microhistorian about the Maury Island incident. So how would you assess this case? What do you think really happened? Oh, that's great. I've always wanted to be asked to make the documentary, you know, making the case for Maury Island. Um, I well, And it dovetails with the most frequent question that we get when we share the movie or do a talk, which is, what do you think happened? What do you think happened? And I, I am uh, my colleague, who is the director, you know, he goes and takes the deep dive. He has a lot of great theories. I'm kind of the skeptic, right? I, I'm, I'm the, I, I, I tend to say I don't know what he saw. Um, um, and you know, there's a lot of fantastic parts of the claims relating to what he saw. Um, but I am convinced to every fiber of my being that the story, that what we know actually happened. Right, every component that we know happened is absolutely magnificent, <laughs> and so, and and so, and then I would dovetail. And the one thing I do believe is is I'm I've got an open mind. The the, the arrogance to suggest that I know things did or didn't happen, or that there are or are not others in the universe. I mean, I I I can't imagine that. I I have a very open mind about things that can happen, but I I, I make no claim, Alan, about what actually happened at Maury Island. I feel pretty strongly that uh, this hoax theory should be cast aside. We can decide not to believe Harold Dahl, but I don't think the hoax thing is the reason we shouldn't. I think when when the FBI has basically got in, in writing that the hoax is itself a fabrication, I think we need to move on. And And I think, unfortunately, you can imagine how many books have been written about Roswell. I mean, the the, the the slew of investigation of every other major sighting is incredible. Can you imagine if that was brought to bear on Maury Island? And it hasn't been. And I think the reason is people don't want to touch that notion because of the possibility of hoax. I just think it's a, a wonderful story. Well, it is an absolutely magnificent story, as you say. And I think it's very cool that you have a role in telling it. So thanks for bringing us in on it, and good luck with the Men in Black birthday bash. Well, thank you, and I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate having a chance to talk to you, and hopefully you're, you know, I don't know, millions of listeners. Um, millions. Millions and millions. We'll go Carl, we'll go Carl Sagan on them. <laughs> good. Thanks to Steve Edmiston and Natalie Welch of the Men in Black Birthday Bash for setting up the interview. For more about the Maury Island incident and modern-day controversies surrounding UFOs, or as they're now known, Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena, or UAPs, check out my blog item on CosmicLog.com. You'll also find links to information about this week's Men in Black Birthday Bash in Des Moines, Washington. Thanks to James Emily for his rendition of the Fiction Science theme music, composed by yours truly. Please subscribe to our Fiction Science podcast, and feel free to give us a stellar rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your favorite podcast channel happens to be. And so, until next time, this is Alan Boyle advising you to watch the skies.